musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, I hope you haven't given up on me getting these podcasts out more frequently. I can assure you that it isn't because I don't have the best of intentions. Last Wednesday, when I got back from a trip to the Seattle area, I was even more charged up than when I returned home from Burning Man this year. But by Thursday morning, I was sick in bed with a cold that I must have picked up on the plane ride home. And to be honest, I should probably still be in bed right now, but I think if I don't get this out today, I'll probably get even sicker just worrying about it. And one of the reasons I say that is a week ago Saturday night at the Oracle Gathering in Seattle, several people came up to me and asked why I've taken so long to get Dale Pendle's Burning Man Talk podcast. So I promised them I'd get it out as soon as I returned home, and I don't want them to think that I didn't mean it when I said I'd podcast it right away. For those of you who don't yet know Dale Pendle, I'm not sure where to start because he is truly a renaissance man. Among other things, Dale is a poet, a software engineer, and a longtime student of entheobotany. And for those of you who have been around the tribe for a while, you most likely know him from some of the books he's written about entheogens. That's uh, psychedelic medicines, for those of you who aren't yet familiar with the word. And right now, by the way, you can pre-order a new book that Dale has coming out about Burning Man. It's titled Inspired Madness, The Gifts of Burning Man. And uh, I believe it comes out in about four weeks. Already it's uh, climbing up the Amazon charts, so you might want to get your order in soon just to be sure that you get a first edition of what I expect uh, is going to eventually become a Burning Man classic. Now, I know that many of you are completely turned off by any talk that even smacks a little bit about politics, and I completely understand. Well, I don't mean in any way to diminish the hard work that some of you more politically inclined saloners are doing. I have to admit that, in a way, it seems like we're just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. After all, it's the culture that has to change. Then the system will change with it. But I do believe that it's important work you're doing, if for no other reason than to be fighting a rearguard action to keep the fascists off our backs while we evolve this new psychedelic culture. That said, just because the title of Dale's talk is Horizon Anarchism, it doesn't mean that this podcast is about politics. In fact, it seems to me that anarchism is sort of the anti-gravity of politics. And Dale's concept of Horizon Anarchism is, at least for me, a refreshing new way to look at the subject. After all, two of my favorite things, the Internet and Burning Man, are very close to functioning anarchies themselves. So, even if you're normally turned off by talk about the sad state of affairs in a world run by gigantic corporations, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by some of the cool ideas that Dale Pendle has to offer in his 2006 Palenque Norte lecture at Burning Man. Due to the fact that I failed to turn on my trusty tape recorder before I began my introduction of Dale, we're going to pick up after he'd begun speaking for about 30 seconds or so. Sorry about that. So now, here is Dale Pendle presenting his ideas about horizon anarchism in the big tent at Entheon Village at the 2006 Burning Man Festival. 
comes into uh, my book, Inspired Madness, through festivals and the potlatch. One of the problems with political action, uh, I think, that developed in the, uh, as we saw it, um, in the last uh, 30 years or so, is that it hasn't been much fun. And Barbara Ehrenreich, in a wonderful essay called uh, Transcendence, I think Madness in the Festival, talks about how festivals in medieval Europe happened all year long. In some cases, with all the saints' days, a third of the days of the year were holidays, were festivals. Festivals were often centers of political rebellion, which is why um, they were often repressed. What finally closed them down um, was the rising power of the state, Protestantism, um, and the Enlightenment. Reason. Whereas a festival coming out to such a God-forsaken place in the middle of nowhere with great difficulty to this paradise of dust and exuberant wasteful expenditure is surely madness. This is not reason. And uh, the Marxists didn't like festivals either. Um, Lenin even wrote that uh, he was grateful to the capitalists for having disciplined the working class. One of the philosophers that I turn to in Inspired Madness uh, is, the late, is the late Norman O. Brown. In 1990, the year that Burning Man moved out here to the playa, Brown, uh, in a prophetic tone, strengthening of the forces of Eros, for which Freud prayed, might create new institutions of individual generosity and public joy, such as the world has not seen since Mont Saint-Michel and Chartres. Gift-giving, a primary manifestation of Dionysian exuberance might be able to revel in its own intrinsic self-sacrificial nature instead of being inhibited and distorted in bondage to primary social institutions of self-assertion. And public joy might manifest itself in carnivalesque extravaganzas uninhibited by the resentment of the exploited, the excluded, the deprived. We 
have some way to go yet to reach that. But it's a great pointer. And just the fact that this many people come together, um, not under the corporate logos, helping each other, doing what we do, and having kind of backwards fool's days of breaking the rules, breaking the taboos, standing out, walking backwards, mocking all that is holy and sacred, speaking the unspeakable, saying, fuck, fuck him, fuck you, fuck you, hippie, hey, fuck you, redneck, hey, have a beer, okay. It gives me hope. Anarchism. Anarchism is often brought up in the Burning Man context as uh, the theoretical foundation, often through the situationist. Uh, and mostly it's misunderstood. And here's a story. A few years ago I was at my polling place the primary election. And a uh, tall guy walked in, looked like a working man, and said in a loud voice, Can I vote in the Democratic primary? I'm a registered Republican and proud of it. And where I live, from all around the room, there were God bless yous. And What I, what I thought was, um, fuck. <laughs> and I'm a registered Democrat and ashamed of it. <laughs> what is that about? It's about because I'm really an anarchist. Most people, when they hear anarchism, they either think of uh, the Haymarket bombers. You know, it's that round bomb that's black with a little fuse that's turning. Um, and certain journals, uh, Anarchy, a journal of desire armed, um, like that part. Uh, they think that anarchy means no rules, which has never really been a part of anarchist theory as a political practice. Uh, anarchism really means no ruler, which means no state, which means a way to live without an armed police force and standing armies in our midst. We're kind of an occupied country. Hannah um, Arndt said that the 
one prerequisite for all police states are concentration camps. Now, she wrote that in uh, the 40s. So the image of uh, Hitler and Stalin were foremost. These things morph into different forms. The United States now has more people in prison than any other country in the world. We have the highest incarceration rate of any country in the world. What am I missing? Police state. Um, so we must resist how we can and come up with a theory of where we want to go. And so I'm calling that horizon anarchism. Anarchism has to do with cooperation, cooperative living, that through most of our existence, 40,000 years, um, we have lived as anarchists cooperatively. Kropotkin's insight was that that was kind of the mark of our species. That's our particular thing, is that we help each other. Ancient Paleolithic burials show arthritic skeletons. These people had to be cared for, carried even, fed for years and years. That takes brains. That's why we evolved large brains. Because we're the people who take care of each other. No other... Um, emotion is a mammalian invention. We're the huddling class. You know, we stack in mush piles under the great freezing cosmos. And all mammals do that to some extent, but our species has really perfected this aspect of compassion and care. Care for the unfit. We want to bring everybody along with us. That's what takes brains. There's lots of solutions to survival of the fittest. You can be fast, you can be strong, you can be invisible. Um, the anarchists are kind of all over the map on a lot of particulars about how to implement things. Um, historically, a lot of anarchists have worked through unions. Um, in Spain, the unions, the anarchists, Unions took control through an election. Duh. And they made the trains run on time. Um, and enlisted men could question the orders of their officers. And that's not why they lost. We see that the state on balance, has created much more damage 
much more pain, much more suffering, and a general tendency to infantilize the population. You don't have to look very far back in history to see that the greatest crimes have all been committed by the state. That's not to say, left to our own devices, without a police force, that we wouldn't have trouble. But it's one thing to have a bully in the camp, or maybe a bully with a gun, which might require a bunch of us to get together to figure out what to do about it. There's a big difference between that and um, 100,000 or 500,000 such armed bullies marching in step. So, the greatest weapon of mass destruction is the state, with its armies, its prisons, its spy networks. That's the great danger. If, as I often think, we sort of live in an insane asylum, it is not wise to leave weapons of mass destruction lying around. We can say, yes, but we need the state. What about, what about the wackos? It is because wackos always come along, and particularly because they are attracted to power, that the state is such a dangerous organization. Inevitably, one of them will end up controlling it. And then we have big problems. Some anarchists don't want to take part in any governmental forms at all, but what I'm trying to look at in what I call horizon anarchism is a long-term view, which means that reformist measures are okay. That good anarchist, Noam Chomsky, um, believes that we need the state right now to hold down the corporations, that it's our only form against them. Actually, none of the corporations could exist without the state backing them up. The state primarily is about protecting private property. By private property, we do not mean your personal possessions. We don't mean your house, your car, even your store. We mean global capital that can claim to own all of it whose very existence is created to try to own all of it. In Buddhism, there's an entity called the hungry ghost, the preta. And uh, at every meal, Buddhists make a little offering to the hungry ghost, the hungry spirits. The hungry spirits have huge stomachs, swollen bellies, and these giant appetites, but uh, necks no wider than a strand of thread, so they can never be satisfied. They're always hungry. 
they're locked into craving. What is the corporation but the embodiment of disembodied craving? Its whole creation is to make more. And we have chosen to build our society around them. We've given them the rights of citizens. The 14th Amendment, I think that's the one, meant to guarantee freedom to the ex-slaves. 90% of the time it has come to the Supreme Court, it's been used to defend corporations, like they were people, like they were citizens, like they had families, like they worked, like they had neighbors. They don't. They're ghosts. Details of implementations of what to do about these things have to be decided at the time by the people involved. We can't come up with any general theory about this. But note, when people get together for direct action, maybe a corporation that owns houses and apartment houses in Oakland someplace has decided if they throw everybody out, they can make a little more on their bottom line by um, selling them to people who can't afford to move to Marin. Um, and the people finally get so fed up, are so oppressed, are hurt so much being pushed out onto the street with everything that they own, that they band together. They manage to organize and stand up to do something about it. It is the state police that come out to protect property. None of that, none of the corporate wealth could exist without the state backing it up. Chomsky is afraid they will soon have their own armies, and we seem to be working in that direction. But I don't think uh, mercenary armies would have the popular support. They just, I, I don't know, I think we'd win. What to do about it? The first thing that I see is that we want a vision of where we want to go. I would like to go. I would like to live in a society where people help each other and take care of themselves, where there's no standing army, there's no prisons, there's not a police force, and there are always going to be problems. And we'll, I don't know, deal with them, right? Deal with them. Many people will say, that's against human nature. The intellectual foundations of the state go back, well, one to Plato, who in the Republic, which is what all the aristocratic youth used to have to read, in school said that people should be ruled by the wise and people can't really take care of themselves they're too dumb to make the right decisions so in order to keep them happy to keep them pacified we the wise must lie to them but this is a holy lie because it is done for the good of the state which means our 
our estate, basically. Historically, the excesses of oligarchies have been far beyond anything that happens at a local level. Um, I have stoned things the reason that uh, Socrates was condemned to death was because he supported the, the uh, oligarchs. All of his pupils did. Who allied themselves with Sparta and overthrew the democracy in Athens and instituted the rule of the, I don't know, 27 families or something and executed thousands in Athens to secure their position. It took a generation uh, to kick them out. Great suffering. Other intellectual foundation for those who would rule with coercion is the philosopher Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes, supporting the monarchy, said that human beings by nature, if just left to their own devices, are cannibalistic murderers. And if we didn't have a police force watching over us, we would attack each other and eat each other. Gary Snyder, in uh, 1967, 1968, uh, in his book Earth Household, wrote, To those who say it's against human nature, we must patiently explain that you have to know your own essential nature before you can say that. And that those who have gone into this deeply for some thousands of years now, their reports have come back that we have nothing to fear. That with some training, develop some inner discipline, the way is clear. We can live together. Brown, working off of Finnegan's way said in the era of here comes everybody HCE that is the fall of high art which is something you will hear from um, uh, intellectuals on the right sometimes but we must defend high culture and I don't know, I mean, looking at the wasteland of uh, television and all, you know, it's, it's hard not to, it's hard to be a Democrat. Sometimes it's hard to believe in the people. Um, it's just that the alternatives are so clearly nasty that if you've got to throw your hat someplace, um, let's all throw it in together and try to find another way to do things. 
Brown said, the grand, the grand Inquisitor is betting that circuses, that is, passive entertainment, will satisfy the masses. The Dionysian bets that the Inquisitor is wrong. And that is the great hope of something like this, like Burning Man, with some, just the fact of people getting together in great numbers is a huge threat to the state. That is why every year um, the feds try and add more strictures. They try and they try to squeeze it out economically. They said we want more police there. You have to pay for them, even though yes, it's true there are, there are very few arrests and we don't find any crime. But um, but they would like to stamp it out. Corporate interest will attempt to come and uh, offer compromises. As uh, force compromises. And that could happen. But um, as that good philosopher, Hakim Bey, says, um, some of these things have a temporary nature at one place. And when they are discovered and squashed out someplace, they appear someplace else. But the importance of getting together to avoid this isolation, the isolation, isolation is one of the keys of state power. So it's very important for us to get together and have fun. It's, it is a political act. It is an act of what anarchy is based upon. If this can be true, given time, we have an alternative. I want to see the president when it comes time to sign a bill, even if such may be necessary, to recognize, instead of being proud of every piece of legislation that's passed, to recognize that it represents a failure of our collective social nature. And instead of giving away all these pens with fanfare, you should light a stick of incense. Oh, and say, my fellow Americans, it is with deep regret that I must announce to you we have had, because we could not solve this problem on our own, we have had to enact another piece of legislation. Let us pray. We can recover our senses and repeal it as soon as possible. Perhaps in horizon anarchism, which just means we want it on the horizon, knowing where we want to go is half of it. Let's just, if we can stop things from getting worse, that's really enough. Because there are those who acquired great wealth, owning 
basically countries. Because just because they acquired their wealth, essentially through theft, that does not necessarily give us the right to steal it back. In anarchism, the basic principle is that the ends do not support the means. It is our practice, it is what we do, should be embodying the ends where we want to go. Let them keep it. They won't live that long. I mean, you might have an estate tax or something that they should give back their fair share to what supported them and made possible this great accumulation of wealth. Sick as that is, in the first place. Corporations are supported not only by the bailouts, which we read about, which exceed everything spent on social welfare by more than an order of magnitude, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Their whole operation is subsidized by us. Everybody pays taxes. It's all supported by the people. The research is supported. The armies are supported. Maybe there's a problem in some part of the world. The workers, having had too fucking much, band together. So we send in an army to protect private property. Maybe we set up an assassination. We keep the lines open. It's all subsidized by us. There's no reason they shouldn't pay their share. At Burning Man, um, a lot of what's called anarchism or anarchist discussion is actually um, what I would call libertarianism. Libertarianism is, um, along with the whole neoconservative movement, the neocons, they like to say this, we're against the state, down with government, get government off our backs. What they're really talking about, they're not talking about dismantling the forces protecting their property or their rights. They want to dismantle the watchdog agencies. They're trying to give some protection to consumers and to workers and to the earth. They don't want anybody telling them that they can't strip mine, pollute, do anything they want with what they so-called own. They're actually for a stronger form of government. Now this business of do we still need government at this time is a sticky point for anybody thinking about eventually getting to a condition without the state. Some say, and they may be right, you can't work through the state to get beyond the state. They may be right. Uh, Chomsky thinks that's not so. And as I mentioned, uh, in Spain, the anarchists came in through a popular electoral movement. There's no reason we can't do that. All we have to do is stop 
supporting the forces in every way we can, and they can't sustain. Um, a hundred-year wait would be a miracle. At a thousand years, if it took a thousand years to gradually dismantle the armed forces watching over us and the mechanisms of the state, that would be a bargain. That's fine. That's no problem. Um, and that's horizon anarchism. Um, I've got a little time. I'll take a question. agree. He said, if, if I can paraphrase and restate that, the gentleman spoke of the liberation of the imagination. Um, I completely agree. That's where it has to start. That's absolutely the place to ask. It's, it's the easiest. It's kind of the lightest thing around, you know. I mean, some of this stuff's kind of heavy to lift. Um, but the lightest and the easiest thing to move is the imagination. And uh, I completely agree with you. Breaking out of uh, experimenting with new forms, um, that's where the violence should be. Blake said, I will not cease from mental fight. The alternative is corporeal war. That's what Blake saw. And here we have... Uh, um, and there's an, uh, an invocation of the young god Dionysus um, who was very important to uh, my teacher N.O. Brown and the trouble follows Dionysus it's not like this is um, all going to be peace and love trouble always follows and his appearance was often dreaded but the alternative the repression of Dionysus, according to the ancients, is much worse. That leads to the sacrifice of children. Um, and I mentioned in my book that there, some have occasionally here mistaken themselves for the god and walked naked into the fire. That has happened. I say that stamps the ceremony as genuine. And Euripides would have left that part in. As, as the greater system comes under stress, do I see that as energizing social transformation? Yeah, well, things, things can get very brutish in stress. Um, so I think the, those who, who want to, uh, in the old Marxist terminology, raise the dialectic. That is, let's let things get worse so the revolution will come sooner. No. No, things are plenty bad enough. Um, and poverty, great inequality in wealth, 
repression. It separates people, it fragments the society, and it can take generations for familial relationships, for relationships between parents and children, uh, violence within families. All of these things result from these great social stresses. Um, our, our society is so schizophrenic now, so skilled, that to be well-adjusted at this point is really a mark of ill health. Um, but <laughs> okay, we got about two minutes. Two questions. Two, two questions. Yo. That's a deep question. He asked about the Federal Reserve System. Um, I uh, there's an interesting book by uh, Jerry. Martin, Martin, um, called Shell Game, about the history of money, and goes into it at kind of a deeper level. You know, I mean, the Federal Reserve, or Jackson getting rid of the bank, or the Hamiltonian Bank, it's a very complicated thing. I've seen um, a big book on, on that, and I'm, you know, I'm not qualified to to speak on it, but it's part of a larger problem. The issue with money is, um, yeah, that's a tough nut to crack. And one of the fantastic things here on the pie is just what difference it can make, just the lack of currency going around. I mean, except we have to, we have to pay for our real drug, you know, down at center camp, but... <laughs> <laughs> he asked about I, I have written about the connection between um, uh, stimulant drugs and industrial and industrial capitalism through the enlightenment and mercantilism um, and what does it mean that that's the one thing that they sell here it just shows you know that's how that is our true that is the ally of our culture. That's our true plant ally. And the, you know, the real plant ally is the one that's so close and so all around you all the time that you don't even see it. You just take it for granted. Um, but yeah, that's real. I mean, there, there are lots of contradictions um, in Burning Man, and I try and address some of those in Inspired Madness. Um, the idea, so I just want to close with one idea, which is this idea of wasteful consumption. And if you look at the uh, Belgian pig, the Belgian waffle, um, what can this mean, all of that lumber, all those sweet Canadian two-by-threes, um, which we will burn? That wasteful consumption, which is anathema, to conservationalists of the old school, to, um, I don't know, to Protestants generally, to Catholics, won't say everybody. It's madness. That our greatest blessings, Socrates said, come to us through madness if it is divine madness inspired by the God. So we grace this wasteful consumption with the name of a god, 
we will call him the god of the potlatch. And that in burning this surplus, we can look on it as a magical sacrifice. The alternative worship is war. speakers. Dale, can they pre-order your book on Amazon yet? Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm going to check it, and on our site at matrixmasters.com, we'll have some information and links, and uh, I would urge you to go to Amazon and pre-order the book. I think the publishers love that, and, and we'll be promoting it on amazon.com as well, I mean at matrixmasters.com. So, uh, check It'll be in bookstores and, and, yeah, go to your bookstores and do it as well. Correct. I'm sorry. I'm just kind of a net guy. Don't you just love Dale's closing remark about the conflagrations of Burning Man where he called it a magical sacrifice where the alternative worship is war? What really blew me away with that comment is that it came as an ad-lib answer to a question from the audience. And I can tell you that not only is Dale a great writer and poet, but he is also a really nice person, somebody you'd like to spend some time with. We were definitely lucky to have him as one of our speakers at this year's Palenque Norte Lectures. As I was listening to him just now, uh, thoughts of both Burning Man and the recent Oracle gathering I attended are still very fresh in my mind. And So when Dale said, isolation is one of the keys of state power, so it is a very important for us to get together and have fun. Well, his words really struck home, especially the have fun part. And I'm here to tell you <laughs> that one place on the planet where people have figured out for sure what fun is, is in the Pacific Northwest of the States. I'm not quite sure what you Canadians call the Vancouver, Seattle, Portland area, but you know where I'm talking about. For a guy who is basically an early-to-bed, early-to-rise kind of person, Seattle sure turned me upside down. While I was there, I found myself going to bed at around the time I normally get up. And what I couldn't believe is that I was more or less able to keep up with the pace of their fun up there, at least for a few days. <laughs> Maybe that's why I'm still dragging around with such a low energy level right now. But hey, we can catch up on our sleep when we die, right? Anyway, it was really worth it, and I'll tell you more about that in my next podcast. But for those of you who can't wait for the next couple of podcasts to hear the talks that Daniel Pinchbeck and I gave at the Oracle Gathering up there, you can listen to the raw cuts of our presentations on a new website that has just come online under the name Data Church. That's D-A-T-A-C-H-U-R-C-H dot com. I'm going to try to get these talks podcast before the end of this week if possible, but the only difference in what I podcast and the Data Church versions will be that I'll cut the dead air out when people are asking questions. Right now, however, my main focus is to prepare for a trip my wife and I are taking at the end of the week to go up to the high desert and spend a little time with Myron and Jean Stolaroff, where we'll be starting a little oral history project with them, which will eventually be podcast, of course. 
For those of you who aren't familiar with Myron, you might want to pick up a copy of a book John Markoff wrote last year titled, What the Dormouse Said. Its subtitle is, How the 60s Counterculture Shaped the Personal Computer Industry. And by the way, I really appreciate those of you who are now buying your books and other stuff from Amazon through our store at matrixmasters.com. As you know, we get a small percentage of each sale made through our online Amazon store, and that's what keeps our website and these podcasts going. That and the uh, Google ad click-throughs, of course. So thanks for supporting us in that way. Even though it's only a few cents per book that we get, it does add up enough to pay for our hosting expenses. Getting back to Markov's book, while it's really a good book, I was surprised to learn that he never even bothered to interview Myron for it which is pretty amazing since he credited Myron with being one of the three most important people who kick-started both the 60s and the PC revolutions. In case you don't know it, Myron was one of the first dozen or so people in all of North America to take LSD. You know, his lineage with acid goes all the way back to the Huxley days. And since big-time authors like Markov are writing about those days but not getting their stories directly from the people who lived them, I thought it would be important to get as many of these uh, personal accounts recorded as possible. And you, my dear fellow Saloners, are going to be the first to hear them. Well, that's about all the energy I've got right now, so I'm going to sign off and let you think about what a glorious future we can have on this planet with some sort of a form or another of psychedelic anarchy on the horizon. (laughs) Doesn't that thought just make you tingle? Well, my thanks to Dale Pendle for his excellent presentation, and to Darren, Mark, Michael, Brian, and the rest of the Entheon Village crew and their supporters, without whom the Palenque Norte lectures could not have taken place this year. And my many thanks also to Jacques, Cordell, and Wells, otherwise known as Chateau Hayuk, for the use of your music here in the Psychedelic Salon. For now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.